0: Good morning again. I am so delighted to be here. Um, uh, Reverend Maria is a dear friend of mine. We met in seminary and have stayed friends. And so I was grateful for her invitation to give her a bit of time to rest and to meet you. I hope you join me in just A moment of stillness before we reflect together. Speak to my heart. message of love to encourage me lifting my heart from despair how you love me and care for me if you speak to my heart speak to my heart speak to my heart. Amen and ashe. So tomorrow, I have the day off work. I'm excited. See, the organization I work for is actually based in Washington, D.C. And in Washington, D.C., on April 16th every year, Something is celebrated called Emancipation Day. You might be familiar. On April 16, 1862, President Abraham Lincoln signed something called the District of Columbia Compensated Emancipation Act for the release of certain persons who had been held to service or labor in the district. This act freed about 3100 enslaved people in DC nine months before Lincoln issued the broader thing we all know, the Emancipation Proclamation. This act also has the distinction of representing the only example of compensation by the federal government to enslavers. So part of the deal was 3,100 people get set free and all of the people who had owned them got paid. By the way, this impacts all of us, even if you don't work or live in D.C., because Emancipation Day is an official public holiday that is observed not only by the District of Columbia, but by the federal government. So by law, if April 16th falls on a Monday, all the tax deadlines, federal and state, must be moved to the 17th, not the 15th. That's why Tax Day This year is April 17th. So I have a long weekend. And you've got a couple more days to file your taxes if you haven't already done so. Thanks to the commemoration of this peculiar kind of moment. As I said, the enslaved got free and the enslaver got paid. So can I be honest? None of this puts me in a mood to celebrate. (laughs) None of this makes me want to write that obligatory check. DC government goes into this week, first celebrating its capacity to emancipate people, then the very next day, leveraging its power to obligate people. I wonder if we can all spend some time thinking about the cost of participation in these messy, arrangements. You know the kind. Where freedom isn't actually free. Where you pay now to be secure later. D.C. residents aren't the only ones to lay claim to the fact that they are subject to federal taxation without representation to show for it. You see on some D.C. cars, the license plates that say taxation without representation, Well, formerly incarcerated people pay various kinds of taxes, but are barred from voting in many states. High school students in America are mature enough to work and pay taxes, but apparently not politically sophisticated enough to vote until they're 18. Adults like me who work in one state and live in another pay income tax to a place that will not be mutually investing in us. To become a citizen of the United States, immigrants must be, typically, permanent residents for some period of time, usually five years. And permanent residents pay taxes. But of course, in most cases, can't vote and may not actually become citizens. These compulsory contributions, taxes, to state and federal revenue, should activate a kind of access. Access to power, influence, freedom, flourishing. But do they? For everybody? Surrendering to deductions and income and writing checks at the beginning of the year aren't the only way we pay taxes. This is not actually a sermon about owing Uncle Sam. We can talk about that another time. This is a sermon about owing about owing ourselves, about owing each other, and the ways owing can go wrong. The other definition of the verb tax, according to the dictionary, is to make heavy demands on someone's power. To make heavy demands on someone's power and resources. And I want to suggest this morning that our Ways of being together, our relationalities are constructed by tax brackets, tax brackets. Now we often organize our relationships in terms of indebtedness, (coughs) obligation, owing. How much does it cost you to be in the relationships you're in? Think about this. You might have a relationship like the one I'm about to describe the relationship I have with my mother. It is very transactional. <laughs> Everything will cost. And while, I, you know, I'm grown now and I'm a mother myself, and so some of the bygones can be bygones, the wound is still acute. Building a relationship supposedly based on unconditional love, on transactions, on quid pro quo, on I wash your back, you wash mine. It's been a difficult relationship. And if we are honest in those quiet moments, We might hold a few of these difficult relationships where you can't pull unless there's a push. This system of taxation trickles over into our personal lives. We feel coercively obligated. Maybe the people who've hurt us or the people who won't mutually invest. Us. Taxation without representation. One thing that has helped me get out of these kind of transactional relationships or see the ways I've been holding somebody to a debt is this poem that's printed in your bulletin by one of my favorite favorite artists. her work is sacred text to me. Nahira Wahid, she is a black, queer, Muslim woman. She writes, I am mine before I am ever anyone else's. I am mine before I am ever anyone else's. This comes from a collection of poetry she calls SALT. Just that word, SALT. What are our obligations to ourselves? What are our obligations to each other? And how might those obligations be coercive, be forced, be legislated, be compulsory, and not constructed by mutual consent? I think about, you know, I'm a newlywed, y'all. My wife and I just celebrated, uh, I guess we're up to 18 months now. Look at that. And this is the first relationship I've ever been in, platonic or otherwise, where we're trying to construct something outside of indebtedness. And it's hard, right? She tells me to pick up the towel off the floor. Why is the towel on the floor? Are you using the towel after you place it on the floor? We have this conversation, every. pick up the towel. (laughs) Please. And I say, well if you would just hang up your clothes after they come out of the dryer. Quid pro quo. Keeping score. I know you have perfect relationships, so that never happens in <laughs> <laughs> This is the first relationship where I'm trying to show up differently. Well, she doesn't owe me, and I don't owe her, but we mutually decide to share power and share resources. Trying not to tax each other unjustly, coercively. I sing in a choir called the Threshold Choir. I don't know if there's one in Maryland, probably. Threshold was started about 25 years ago by a woman named Kate Munger, who is based in California. Kate had a friend who was very, very ill, living in hospice care, and she goes to see the friend. And she she prepares, right? She's like, I'm gonna provide comfort to this friend. And she gets to the friend's bedside and has lockjaw, has no idea what to say. What do you say? But Kate is a singer. And so Kate says, the only thing I know how to do is sing. So she starts to sing. And her friend brightens. She relaxes, and they have a wonderful moment of being together. And she said, hi, what if there were little choirs like this all over, that could just show up at a bedside and provide the comfort of song? So I'm in one of these choirs in Philadelphia, threshold choir. And when we show up to people's bedsides, what they say to us is not, You know, I wish I had gone to get that master's degree. Or I wish I had perfected my grandmother's cornbread recipe. No. What they say is, I wish I hadn't held that grudge. I wish I had satisfied the debt and relationship I had to a person I loved even. This is why the poem The Invitation by Oriah speaks so much to me and I bet to you. Oriah had gone to a dinner party one night and it was your usual, what do you do for a living? Who do you know? How important are you? Kind Con- of Conversations. And she got home and she wrote this poem, partly out of anger, but partly out of yearning for depth in relationship, yearning for the kind of relationship that isn't brokering a deal, It isn't making good on the debt. This is why she said, That interests me what you do for a living. I want to know what you ache for. That interests me how old you are. I want to know if you'll risk looking like a fool for love, for a dream, for your favorite song on the radio. That's my edit. She said, I want to know if you can sit with your pain without moving to hide it or fade it or fix it? I want to know you can live with failure. I don't care where you live or how much money you have. I want to know if you can get up after a night of grief and despair and do what needs to be done to feed the children. So I got nothing. I got the day off tomorrow and I gotta pay you-know-who Tuesday. But I'm also striving to be in a relationship not founded on indebtedness, on obligation that is forced on owing. I'm striving to be with the people I love without asking for anything except them. And I just invite you to consider that too. Bless it be.